Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Endeavor podcast. Today is Monday, July 15th, 2019, and I'm your host, Stephen Schroeder. Every year for the past 17 years, Wolfram Research has hosted the Wolfram Summer School, where students from all over the world come to work on really cool and innovative projects using Wolfram language. This year I attended, and during my time there, I had the opportunity to talk to Stephen Wolfram, the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research. We talked about the ways computational thinking and programming languages are involved in education, the role Wolfram technology has in scientific discoveries and science communication, and Stephen's recent trip to the U.S. Senate where he proposed a solution for the way that AI is being used to serve content on the internet. I had a lot of fun talking with Stephen, and I hope you enjoy the episode too. Without further delay, here's Stephen Wolfram. Thanks for joining me today, Stephen. Happy to be here. I won't make you do the uh, short introduce yourself kind of thing. I'll, I'll give you the little introduction. Uh, for the past 30 years, you've been working on Wolfram language, including Mathematica and Wolfram Alpha. Uh, your background's mostly in physics and, physics and math. Kind and, of, yeah. Okay. I was, if I'm qualified as anything, I'm qualified to be a physicist. And the reason that you kind of started the language is because you needed to kind I of... I wanted to have it myself. That's, right. uh, it's always it's always a good reason to build a product is because you want it yourself, and I mean Wolfram language was the is the second computational language that I built. I built the first one when I was twenty years old, starting when I was twenty years old, and that was built because I was trying to do computations in physics, and it was super painful to do them by hand moving, you know, algebraic formulas around. And so I wanted to build a computational system that could do that. And that ended up with me building a computational language and um, starting a company around that and so on. And for uh, reasons, uh, all kinds of reasons, I ended up uh, doing something people, that's always a great thing to do, but people very rarely get to do it, which is throw one away and build a second one. Um, And uh, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, and building Wolfram Language. And it was a lot easier not to make a lot of mistakes because I'd already done something a bit like it before. Right. And you mentioned computational language a couple of times. What would you say to someone who maybe doesn't know what that means exactly? People know what a computer language is, but how does... Right. So, I mean, the tradition of programming languages that's existed for like 60 years has been along the lines of a computer has certain hardware... It has certain built-in instructions that it does, and you have a way of sort of making those somewhat more palatable to a human. The idea of a computational language, and it's sort of my, our unique effort, so to speak, is to try and find a way so that if there's a thing in the world that you can describe computationally, the language should be able to do it. So... A programming language is all about describing the inner operations of a computer. A computational language is about describing things in the world like, uh, I don't know, uh, the um, uh, the way the audio for this podcast is working or the way that, uh, or the physical location we're in or the, uh, uh, the, the, the things about um, the 
transformations that get made on the audio to do this or that, describing all these kinds of things that are real-world things in computational terms. Mm. Um, so having sort of a, uh, just like in, in human natural language, we have a way to talk about the world. That's kind of the point of human natural language. And computational language is to have a computational way to talk about the world. Right, and it's more precise than the human language, and that's what computers essentially need. When yeah, I mean, down, uh, right? to some extent, we can, you know, in, in the case of Wolfram Alpha, we, we do a small amount of, we'll take a piece of natural language and we'll translate it into precise computational language, but you can only get a certain distance that way. If you want to write the big, complicated program that describes how your whole company is going to work or something, then you don't get to do that by... Uh, uh, by giving, if you were doing that in natural language, you would end up with this giant, bizarre, legalistic seeming thing that would be uh, kind of very unwieldy. I mean, the, the, you know, the analogy I've least recently liked to use for computational language is uh, sort of the arrival of computational language gives one a, a sort of concrete way to think about things computationally in much the same way as the arrival of mathematical notation 400 years ago, gave people sort of a, a definite way to think about things mathematically. And it's sort of the, the mathematical notation thing is kind of a big deal analogy because, you know, before mathematical notation, people didn't have algebra, for example, because right. it was too hard to specify that stuff. After mathematical notation, there was algebra, calculus, and then this whole world of, of mathematical stuff that, you know, every kid uh, everywhere pretty much these days is exposed to and is supposed to learn. Um, you know, I think I think in the future, learning sort of computational thinking, uh, in addition to or even to some extent instead of mathematical thinking, is going to be more powerful. And sort of what we're trying to provide is the bridge of the computational language that makes that realistic. Right. Yeah. I know you've said before that you don't want computer science to go the way of what mathematics is right now in the education system. And yeah. That's kind of what you want to avoid with things like Mathematica. Is that yeah, right. Well, I mean, I think part of the part of the point is that with a computational language like we have in, in Wolfram Language, you get to talk about things in the world that hopefully people care about and that you get to do sort of computational X for all X, whether you are interested in botany or you're interested in uh, uh, music theory or you're interested in... Um, oh, I don't know, pick any academic field or, or non-academic field, uh, sort of there's a computational version of it. And the idea of Wolfram Language is to give one a way to, to do that, uh, to, to talk about things computationally in that area. Um, it is not sort of a disembodied, let's just talk to computers in their own sort of uh, way of thinking about things. And, and you know, one of the problems with, with mathematics education is that well, it's, a, it's really a, a funky situation because on the one hand, there's uh, sort of mathematics in its pure form of sort of the aesthetics of mathematics, and there's a lot of very interesting concepts there, most of which don't get taught. Right. And then there's the applications of mathematics, and particularly in modern times, most of the applications aren't really well done by humans. They're typically, you know, it's messy and complicated and it's solving a partial differential equation. It's describing the partial differential equation is a fine and good thing and that's suitable for humans. Actually doing the solution, humans should not be directly involved. That's a, that's a thing for computers to do. And there's sort of a way of thinking about math education where the computer is in the loop. But I think that the, uh, you know, the big problem is 
If you teach only the math that humans can do with their own hands without a computer, there's a limit to what you can teach. And a lot of what you end up teaching is pretty boring and pretty mechanical. Right. And it's the same thing with, with programming, that uh, until you can program about something, it is, it's a very uh, dry kind of area. And I think, you know, this is, it's like, um, you know, this is an issue which has happened in, for example, writing education, that the good news is people write essays as their way of learning about writing, but the essays are always about something. Right. People don't say write a disembodied essay that yeah. is merely about, I mean, kind of interesting to write an essay about essays or something like this. Yeah. But it's not what people typically do. And they don't typically do things like, you know, make up an arbitrary English sentence that has the following noun phrase, verb phrase structure. Like you want to give people the tools and then also something to dig in, right? You yeah, want to yeah, yeah. I mean, but, uh, and I think that's where it is useful at an educational level is it's a way of thinking about things. It's something that should be part of the, you know, the English class as well as the phys physical education class as well as the whatever. It's just a way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. That's something that, by the way, mathematics has not been successful at. I mean, math is usually kids study math and that's a thing. And then they study other stuff, and those are all different things. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare that they'll take the math they learnt and apply it anywhere else. I mean, maybe to physics or chemistry, but that's about as far as it gets. I think that, um, you know, with writing, it gets a little further. They apply it, you know, people write stuff in, you know, they write their lab reports or something, and there's some notion that it matters what the actual English or whatever language sentences were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why I chose geology is because... It's something that I care about. And then during that curriculum, part of that is, you know, applying your tools that you have, your math, to something real world, like a real earth system kind of thing. Right. I mean, I think the challenge in a lot of these places is when it's just the math, yeah. it's not clear how far it goes. I mean, right. I, I'd be curious, what, where is the math and geology, so to speak? I mean, there's probably some chemical, uh, chemical balancing things. Maybe there's some stuff about stress analysis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like there's there's the whole field of geophysics, and then there's also things that happen thermally in rocks, so chemical changes, as well as modeling how water moves through rocks, that kind of thing. Right, well. but I mean, by the time you're doing groundwater and so on, there's not a lot humans are going to be able to do. You can talk about Darcy's right. law for how, um, you know, little pieces of water move in porous rock. It very quickly becomes something that you need a computer <laughs> right. to do. And, and I mean, yeah. and in a sense, the formulation there is much more usefully computational than purely mathematical. Right. I mean, in, um, I mean even in the case of, uh, well, actually, you know, you look at a textbook of, of theoretical seismology, it's actually a pretty nice you know, kind of math adventure, and it's full of tensor indices and all kinds of all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. But um, uh, but that's I think a rare. My impression is that's a rare case where there is a a deep mathematical theory that is not totally non-human, so to speak. Right. I mean, in other words, the the um, uh, yeah, interesting. Um, I was also you know curious about asking more about Mathematica, and that's what's something that you hear about Mathematica that you know is just wrong or like a misconception about Mathematica that you feel like you need oh, to clear well, up? Oh, well, I mean, the, there's, there's always the... Um, I used it in school and it was great there. Now I do production programming and I, and I don't think I can use it anymore. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, that's the... Um, it's part of why we've 
in a sense, rethemed, rebranded what we're doing around Wolfram language rather than around Mathematica, because people would say, oh, Mathematica, it's about math, we don't do math. I mean, the fact is that while Mathematica is great at doing math and gets used by a large fraction of the people in the world who do math and it's at a sort of professional level, it's, uh, you know, the things in it that are purely math probably represent 10 or 20% of what's there. Now, you know, this is an interesting thing because when I first, you know, developed Mathematica and named it 32 years ago now, um, it wasn't clear what math was going to turn into. In other words, there's a lot that math could have grabbed in the world that it actually chose not to. I mean, what had happened, you know, there's a lot that is now considered purely computation that could have been something which is like the generalized math. It's just that math kind of decided it's just what it is and um, it wasn't going to uh, kind of expand itself. And so the, the, you know, it could have been that by 2019, the word math would have meant something more general, but actually it doesn't. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what we've been... Uh, uh, yeah, so, I mean, one of the big challenges is to take sort of the this whole computational language, computational intelligence type system that we've built and make it something that can be used across all the different places where it can be uh, you know, potentially inserted into things that happen in the world and have people understand that that's possible. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a challenge and the world's a complicated place and it, it has the, the feature that um, a lot of things where you didn't push very hard to make something happen, it just happens. Like use of Wolfram Alpha by students, we didn't push that at all, just happened. And there are other things where you put a lot of effort into it and people are just not quite thinking in the right way and, you know, you tell them this, you tell them this and they're like, oh, we don't care. And then you wait a few decades, and then it's like, oh, yes, oh, yes, that's obvious. Suddenly gets picked up. And it's yeah. like, what was the difference? There wasn't <laughs> any, you know, it, it isn't even clear. There are some places where you can kind of see the little, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the connections being made that then allow people in general to do something. And there are other cases where it's just kind of utterly mysterious, at least to me, why something becomes popular at some time that, that, uh, that wasn't popular for a long time before. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you think, like, what's uh, some of the areas that you think are picking up steam right now for Mathematica? Oh, I mean, one of the ones is this idea of notebooks, the sort of notebook interface, this kind of interactive interface that we invented 32 years ago now, that finally kind of people, and people used to say, what a weird interface, what, you know, but then there were other people who said, this is great, this is what I use every day and I really need it. Um, but a lot of people were saying, this is really weird, I'm not used to this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe four or five years ago, it's like suddenly people mm -hmm. start to say, oh, this is a useful interface for doing things. And, and now everybody knows this term notebook, in the, at least in the sort of more technical areas of computing. Mm -hmm. And it's, they even work exactly the same way as the original notebooks we made 32 years ago. It's not like something changed in the technology. It's well, the technology that exists in kind of the, 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 the non-us version is a bit more primitive than what we have, but it's the exact same idea. Right. It's not like it was like, oh, my gosh, in 2015, suddenly something different was possible. No. It's, um, so that's an example. And there are, there are plenty of things where, uh, I mean, in science, for example, my big effort of trying to get beyond kind of 
mathematical equations and so on for describing the world and get to a point where we can actually use computational uh, programs, for example, to describe the world. That's a thing where people said 20 years ago, they said, oh, that's, uh, you know, how can that possibly work? That doesn't make any sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's kind of universally done. And that's been, it's, that one is an interesting one because it's been such a silent revolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, you know, if you look at the history of sort of exact science for a while, for a long time, for a few thousand years, it was kind of like, well, science is like philosophy. It's something that you reason about. And then along came people like Newton who said, well, actually, you can use this methodology of mathematics to talk about the natural world. And that led to this whole mathematical uh, sort of make a mathematical equation for everything and represent the natural world. And that's been running pretty well for 300 years and given us much of the engineering we have today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, my effort was, well, actually, you can generalize that further and not just talk about mathematical equations. You can talk about arbitrary computational processes. And people were like, oh, that's a crazy idea. <laughs> and um, then turns out, you know, now, 15 years later or something, if you look at new models that people make of things in the world, the vast majority are program-based models and not equation-based models. And that's a pretty dramatic transition after 300 years of, of the dominance of, of, you know, if you want to make a, an exact theory of something, whether your theory is in economics or whether it's in, uh, I don't know, psychology or something, well, you've got to write down an equation. People don't say that anymore. They say, let's write down a program. Um, you know, let's, can, we, can we find rules for what happens? Can we write a program for what will happen? Can we represent this computationally? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, a, um, it's sort of interesting for me as being in the middle of it and also being interested in the history of science that it is so silent. That is, when you, you know, a very dramatic uh, conceptual revolution, basically, uh, is something that most people just don't know it happened. And, you know, it's starting to be the case last few years, you know, I start to get contacted by historians of science who say, did you notice that this whole revolution happened that, that you know, you, that you were deeply involved in starting? It's like, well, yes, I have noticed, <laughs> um, you know, it's for you historians to go figure out, you know, how this really happened. And, uh, yeah. uh, and, and what, um, you know, and, and it will be the case, as, as most of these things that involve sort of conceptual change like that, that there will be people who go through their whole careers, you know, keeping to the old paradigm, so to speak. But um, I think there's sort of an accelerating pace of, uh, of the new paradigm there. Do you think that in the next few years you're going to see more and more change in science? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, Pretty much, you know, there are areas like physics that are probably less affected. Some of the older areas of science where mathematical science has been more successful, um, although even there, there's plenty of plenty of examples. And um, I think, uh, I mean, the, the the challenge to science right now is, well, machine learning is a curious challenge to science because if you're trying to, for technology, build a model of something, you can build a model where there's some mechanism that you might be able to talk about about how the thing works or you can just say let's measure a bunch of cases and make a black box machine learning system and just uh, say you know that's what we're going to put into our technological system and uh, that's the whole story now now in a sense that's a you know that goes against what has traditionally been the idea of science which is to be able to describe what's happening in the world and it's saying don't bother to describe what's happening in the world 
just use kind of something which is a little bit like what us humans typically use. I mean, we don't think about when we're shown some physical system mm-hmm. and we're asked, you know, is this pile of rods going to fall down or not? We're not solving, uh, you know, equations of Lagrangian mechanics in right. our heads. It's just we're patterns just, right. that you know. And, and, and it's, you know, that's the same thing that's happening in a sense. The neural net uh, kind of approach to these things is a bit of a return to the before even mathematical equations period of science where it was just, well, a human thought that was going to happen. Now, is that a useful thing? Of course it's a useful thing. Is that something that as a technologically worthwhile thing? Absolutely. It's something where there's sort of a trade-off in these different areas of whether one really wants to push for the narrative science approach or whether one's going to have the purely black box and this is the answer type type approach. And I think that machine learning's kind of picking up steam as far as people noticing it. It's in the news a lot. I know that you were recently at that Senate hearing, and so I wanted to ask a little bit about that and what you thought about it. Sure. No, I mean, look, in in the world of... I've uh, had the good fortune in my life to see maybe 15 sort of fields in hypergrowth where suddenly there's some methodological breakthrough and then suddenly, you know... The whole thing opens up and there's a period of five to ten years when there's incredibly rapid growth. And it's always interesting because in those periods of years, things get invented, which are then then around for centuries. Um, And they're pretty arbitrary and uh, often. And I think, you know, machine learning and neural networks, it's probably a little bit more than halfway through its period of hyper growth um, where it's kind of, you know, a lot of things that seemed completely impossible were methodologically opened up. And a lot of things where people said, oh, computers will never be able to do that. Well, now they can. Um, you know, will it go sort of to the moon? No, it won't. It, it's, you know, it, it's a method. It will, it's, it's actually very similar, sort of technically, it's very similar to what happened with linear algebra in the 1960s and early 1970s, where this kind of uh, numerical linear algebra, dealing with matrices and things, was a thing that became doable and lots of methods were invented for it. And from it came computer graphics, and in fact, neural networks themselves rely greatly on that. And there was a period of time when there was just like from when one couldn't do it to when one could do it. And as soon as one could do it, there were just all sorts of applications that started showing up, whether it was uh, uh, mechanical systems analysis or computer graphics, as I mentioned, or, or other kinds of things. And it's the same thing with, with neural nets and so on, that there are these new things that you can do involving sort of human judgment type tasks that were not possible before that, that are now. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's what's kind of interesting right now is that uh, sort of the AI world is starting to impinge on the kind of uh, uh, everyday person's experiences of the world. Right, and culturally and just in your free time and... Right. It's, it's, it's something where sort of everybody's exposed to AI, and, and one of the ways they're exposed to it is through lots of popular internet services, whether it's you know Google, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, where something is deciding what you should see. Something is deciding on the ranking of a news feed, the ranking of search results, the ranking of whatever, and that something is an AI. Um, and so one of the sort of questions is people say that AI isn't doing the right thing. That AI is prejudiced about, you know, is biased, is this, is that. And so the question is, what on earth does that mean? How would you be able to determine whether it's true or not? And uh, I happened to get roped into testifying for the U.S. Senate about this question. And, and what kind of roped me in was, was 
them talking about, well, maybe we just open up the AI and sort of make the algorithm transparent and look at what's going on inside and check that it's okay. And that's just a completely unrealistic thing to do. Um, and it's something where for sort of very fundamental reasons about the nature of computation is, a, is an impossible and undoable thing. I mean, you have a trade-off. You either don't want computation to do a lot for you, in which case you can absolutely see what's going on and tell every step, or you say, let's let computation really go wild and, and do a lot of stuff for us and be very efficient, in which case, unfortunately, we don't get to describe step-by-step step what it's doing because to require that would be to kind of eviscerate it and slow down what it's doing. So, okay, so given that sort of preamble, one's dealing with the question of, of uh, okay, so how does one tell you know, whether what's happening is, you know, biased, appropriate, treating the, uh, the poor human users in the wrong way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these, these particular companies have, the, have this weird feature. I have to say, I never thought it was going to work, um, but uh, that the users are not the customers. The users, the billions of users, are, are just the fodder for the actual customers who are the advertisers. Right. Yeah, you say they're the product because yeah. you're selling their views, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a little bit... Uh, that, that's perhaps a, that's perhaps putting well, it in a, in a prejudicial way beyond what I would say, but it, it's... Um, uh, the, um, I mean, they are, in, in a sense, the, um, uh, it is a very odd situation. I mean, it's, it's this thing that's grown up, I suppose. It's, um, it's also... In a different dimension, it's kind of the open source software scene is a little bit the same way as who's the customer, what's really going on, what's the quid pro quo for what you're getting, what is the, uh, you know, we've been sort of cataloging these kind of bait and switch methods in, you know, because somebody eventually has to pay for the creation of this intellectual property. And it's, you know, how do you pay for it? Do you pay for it because you're somehow, you know, it doesn't quite work, so people have to pay for support to make it work? Does it, um, oh, well, you can use it, but there are all these patents you have to license or, you know, a variety of different schemes. And it's the same kind of thing with, uh, uh, it's, it's a sort of strange instability that you get from these, you know, in some cases, extremely large businesses that are created by basically the, the non-direct form of the people paying for it aren't the people who are actually using it. I mean, I've been in our own efforts uh, in, for example, the sort of commercialization of Wolfram language and our whole technology stack, I've adopted a very sort of simple-minded, in some sense, very classical approach, which is you make money by selling stuff to people for whom it's valuable. Um, and that's good because it means that the, the sort of the forces driving forward developments and so on are very much aligned with the actual things users need. Now, you know, there'll be situations like, you know, there might be some country where every version is pirated. In those cases, it's like, well, sorry, in our model, we don't build a lot for those kinds of places because it doesn't make any sense for us. Um, but in any case, the, the um, uh, you know, in my impression of my little uh, uh, adventure at the Senate was, um, uh, well, I was a little bit kind of going into it. I was a little bit unhappy because I was kind of like saying, look, they're trying to figure out what to do about this. It's kind of one of the first times where sort of AI reaches into sort of policy in a way that people really, really obviously care about. Um, and here I am basically showing up and saying, sorry, guys, the science says you can't do anything. 
and that's not very useful. So I thought, uh, actually, the week before I was going to do it, I thought I'd better actually figure out, you know, what is a way that one can actually make forward progress on this? And I realized it's actually fairly obvious. I mean, it's, you know, right now, it's the case that, you know, your, your results get ranked by whatever large business it is that is uh, uh, on whose sort of platform you're living, so to speak. But actually, there's no good reason that it has to be the same entity that does the final ranking of results as the one that provides the whole platform and connects advertisers to users and ingests content and so on. And so I just started thinking about what would be involved in uh, letting third parties uh, do that final ranking in some way or another and letting users pick which third party they want to trust about delivering their final content. And you start realizing, well, how would users do that? I mean, you, you could say, well, let's just open up the API and have every user have 10,000 sliders and, by the way, do various pieces of neural net training. Nobody's going to do that. Right. Um, and oh, the other op option is let's just have users be able to switch off anything special to them about the ranking. That's also not useful. It means you, you're going to get, you know, if you're looking for a uh, hamburger joint, you're going to get ones on the opposite side of the earth, which is not very useful. Um, so, you know, but, but what has happened kind of in traditional media, for example, is people decide, I trust this particular brand. You know, somebody else may say, your brand is totally full of it. But each person, you know, they've developed over the course of years some, uh, some sort of uh, uh, um, attraction or, or some sort of um, relationship with that brand. And it doesn't have to be a media brand. It can be any kind of brand. Um, and so the idea is to just let people sort of pick the brand that they want to use to, uh, uh, to be responsible, to take responsibility for kind of the final ranking of content. And, you know, the way it's probably happened, there'll be a layer of service providers that do the technology, and then the brands, just like, you know, the brands don't themselves go and make, you know, uh, TV ads or something. They, they bring in somebody to actually make the TV ad. So similarly here, it's like, well, what's the brand trying to communicate? What's this particular nonprofit or this particular startup or whatever trying to, you know, what are they trying to do? And then there's a question of how do you sculpt that out of the technology that's possible and the various machine learning APIs that um, uh, might be provided by these, ultimately by these platform providers um, uh, who are dealing with the sort of overall flow of content. Right. And so in some way that better aligns the values of I think so. I, mean, I think so. It's, 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 what it's doing is it's saying, um, as a user, you get some control over what's being fed to you. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's probably something which in the end just makes the ecosystem healthier because it means, you know, instead of these companies having to have tens of thousands of people trying to scrub content and figure out, you know, and, and become sort of the moral arbiters for the world, it's like, well, they don't do that. They just, you know, send the bits through and it's up to somebody else to decide whether they don't want to ban this particular idea or not ban it or show people different kinds of content that wasn't what they were expecting or leave, leave people only inside the sort of bubble that, they, that they've traditionally lived in and so on. And that's something where the, uh, for these companies, it saves a big headache that is turning into, in some countries around the world, for example, a major impediment to doing business and a major source of liability. Um, it turns that into something where it's just not their issue because by the time you have a hundred uh, sort of ranking providers 
um, the fact that three of them do some funky thing, nobody's going to get that upset. You can just say, well, just switch. But, you know, if you're, if you're on a social network, like, let's say, Facebook, and all your friends are on Facebook, then you can't just say, well, let's just switch to another social network. But if you don't like the fact that you're being fed, you know, uh, crazy stuff, let's say you're, 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 you're afraid of cats and you keep on getting fed cat videos, you know, you don't, you can, that, that might be a pretty niche case, <laughs> um, but... Uh, um, you know, there, there are plenty of much less niche examples of that. Point um, stands, yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, um, the, um, uh, where, where you, can, um, uh, you can just say, well, I'm going to switch my ranking provider, but I don't have to switch out of this whole social network that, that is sort of this platform that I, that I live in. And I think that's, um, uh, yeah, I think it, it gives much more control back to the users and in a way where probably these users will end up being more engaged with these platforms because somebody will have gone in and figured out for this user who has this type of profile, it's not the generic way of engaging with them. It's a more specific way that can make use of that community, for example, to give human feedback there, to improve the way that the thing is sculpted and so on. And you know, my guess is that uh, you know, if this ends up getting implemented, that the end result will be more money flowing through that system rather than less. And that, that in, in fact, that the platform companies will actually do better, not worse, even though they think, you know, it's, uh, it's like, well, you're, you know, it's like saying if the only thing you could do if you're, you know, if, if you're, for example, the phone company, that um, the only thing you could uh, have happen or uh, take another example, let's say you're doing cable, cable television and you laid the cables and you say, well, we laid the cables and we're going to tell you about all the content you're going to get. Um, you'll do a lot better if you laid the cables and you allow all forms of content and you allow people to pick. Because, you know, if you laid the cable and you have just one channel and happens to be a channel that doesn't fit everybody, mm-hmm. well, then, you know, that's, that's, that's bad news. Now, I don't know how, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't thought through the full details of that analogy because the world of cable, you know, has, has had all kinds of different issues about where the margins really lie. Um, and that's a, that's a complicated story. But I think that the, um, I think it's actually a simpler case in the case of this ranking of content for um, uh, what I called sort of automated content selection businesses. What are the, some of the downsides that you see potentially happening from that? If it you know, it's been interesting because I, you know, I made this proposal and uh, it's had its life in the kind of um, uh, in the uh, on the web and with people commenting it in social media and things like that. I think the um, the interesting sort of number one thing people say is, won't this mean that people can kind of segregate into their own kind of separate echo chamber bubbles, so to speak? Well, the main comment to make about that is that's just what humans do i mean and the question of whether that can be done more now less now you know when people lived in separate villages they lived in their separate villages we ended up now with a sort of global communications capability which has had the effect of making it possible to have more global communication but i think that the um uh in a sense the thing that um well so uh, you know, a thing I've seen now several times from several comments is, uh, you know, don't you believe in, in sort of people having shared values and so on? Well, yes, I do, actually. But the question is that you always have to ask people is which shared values? And so the thought exercise is, OK, let's say you're doing a worldwide platform, which most of these are. Uh, what are the shared values of the world? Hard to know. 
you know, there's quite diverse. And probably it should be quite diverse. Probably if it wasn't diverse, um, you know, that would be a bad thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's always a, I'm always curious about, can one estimate on the back of the envelope, the back of an envelope that with 7 billion people in the world, there are about 200 countries. Why are there 200 countries with a diversity of sizes and things? I don't know. And, you know, if there were, if there were uh, 70 billion people in the world, would there, should there still be 200 countries or should there be more countries? Mm. How should that work? What, um, uh, and in modern times, you know, what really is this, you know, what are the right units even of sort of human interaction? Um, I think for all sorts of reasons, countries have been convenient, but they're typically defined, you know, geographically and territorially. Um, I mean, one of the, you know, there are plenty of societal and political issues about to what extent should, uh, within a country, should there be some uniformity of values? And that's a, you know, that ends up being sort of a, a discussion that I always try to avoid about, you know, uh, immigration, education. These are two areas where this is, uh, you know, a sort of a deeply discussed thing about, you know, you move geographically to a country. You know, should you be integrating into the sort of shared values of the country or not? You provide education. Should all the education sort of educate everybody to be the shared values of the country, whatever that is? I mean, in, in, you know, if you go for the, you know, if you say, let's do totalitarian government, well, then you have a well-defined notion of what shared values for a country are. But, you know, in you know, the U.S., Canada, whatever, that's not the theory. And um, so it's a more complicated situation. So I think, you know, my, my point of view is that uh, uh, making it as easy as possible for people to experience other points of view seems like a good idea. And in the situation where right now, where it's a one size fits all kind of, we're just going to feed you the stuff that's optimal to feed to you. That's probably, based on the sort of tribalism of our species, that's probably going to end up being very much sort of inside the bubble. I think that one can certainly imagine, and the kind of thing I'm thinking about, that there would be brands that would pride themselves on being the, you know, the broad-minded brand. You know, we'll give you 80% the content, we th you know, that you normally have, and 20% of it will be on the other side of the feature space plot, mm -hmm. so to speak, of the exact, you know, somebody might have a, you know, antipodal views um, thing where X percent of your, of your stuff is coming from the exact opposite side of whatever, whatever kind of uh, opinion space you're, you're dealing with. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I can think of ways that it could go badly. Like if you have, say, a content provider that maybe like all the content they provide is something, say, anti-immigrant or whatever, and that's the area that they focus on. And so, yeah, but I mean, this is look, it's like you can say, well, I don't like, you know, religion X or I don't like opinion, you know, set of opinions mm -hmm. X. You know, basically what tends to happen in... Um, I think in, in my theory of these things, the yes, there will be some some totally some sort of ranking providers and so on that uh, some people will think are totally outrageous and totally toxic. And other people will think, no, that's not the case. You know, in countries, they have legal systems, at least, you know, most countries have properly developed legal systems. And there are things where they'll just say, we're going to make that illegal. And, you know, that's a, a definite societal dividing line. And I think the, the trick is that a lot of what people say, well, we don't like that, 
it's not gotten to the point where the country and its whole legal system is going to say we're going to make that illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my point of view is, you know, let these ranking providers do anything that isn't illegal. You know, if it's illegal and they're operating in some country, then say well, you can't do that. But otherwise, it's like okay, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, wants to operate some crazy thing, promoting some point of view that's that everybody disagrees with or lots of people disagree with, then so what? You know, and if that turns out to have a large following. Well, then maybe the people who are on the other side of that would do well to think about why are there so many people who believe this? I mean, you know, I think that's one of the things that one does see happening in 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 the modern world of supposedly highly communicating, uh, you know, people is these situations where some country is you know blindsided by oh my gosh we didn't realize that fifty percent of our population actually thought this. Because you know, because the people who've been sort of making the decisions or something have been stuck in some bubble that doesn't see that. I think so. I think you know, no doubt. I mean, I haven't really thought all this through, but no doubt, when you know, if this happens, there are a bunch of different ranking providers. There will be people who go and make rankings of ranking providers and show you know what is the market share of this provider versus that provider. I mean, obviously, that's known to some extent now for different media outlets, but this may be a more direct place where one can see oh. You know, let's take um, I don't know something which, let's say, uh, you know, doesn't believe in the importance of climate change, right? So you you know you start seeing well, there's this there's this brand of ranking provider that doesn't believe in the importance of climate change, and mm. oh my gosh, it's growing, and there's you know a large fraction of people are going for that. Well, maybe somebody should pay attention to that, or or whatever else. I think it's a it's a um, uh, you know it, it'll create a bunch of I think. Uh, transparency to, you know, what's happening in the sort of opinion space of the world that I think will be kind of interesting, which we absolutely don't have at this point. I mean, I think in a sense, that's what, you know, these uh, senators and so on who are thinking about, let's just open up the AI and see what's inside. That's, in a sense, what they're sort of going for at some level is let's try and understand this opinion space and try and, in their case, maybe sculpt this opinion space in one direction or another. But this is um, something where opening up the AI is not really going to do that. I think. I think the only the only option is this much more sort of multiple black box user choice, user user opinion type type approach. Yeah, it's definitely a area where that's kind of going into the unknown, and I think that's yeah, a definitely right. an interesting idea. Well, I mean, the thing that the thing that's sort of shocking to me is that that. Um, uh, you know, I, there are lots of things that I work on, and I work on them for decades, and I figure stuff out and so on. This was a case where, for whatever reason, I I ended up like I've got a few days to figure out something reasonable, and uh, it's you know as I as I look at it, it's okay. Why aren't there a zillion people who've suggested things like this before? I think part of the reason is that you have to be you have to be both in in and not in the ecosystem. Like you know, I've been in the tech business for forty years. But I'm not actually in this specific part of the tech business of doing, you know, providing automated content selection, you know, uh, on the web and so on. Um, also, you have to have a certain amount of knowledge of things like machine learning and how large software systems are built. Otherwise, anything you suggest will be will be just unimplementable. Um, and so, it's uh, I sort of sort of realize that it's not, you know, I, I don't fault the rest of the world quite so much for 
for not having surfaced ideas like this a zillion times, because um, I think it's it's a slightly funny intersection of of, uh, of different uh, experience bases and things that would lead one to, to suggest something like this, although I consider it fairly obvious. Mm, yeah, no, when you say it, it, it really does sound like someone would have thought of it, but I think a lot of it is part of knowing the what's possible, what's the problem space. Yeah, right. Well, I think it's also, I mean, it's it just the coincidence of, of asking, being asked to testify uh, for this thing gave me sort of a, a, a an excuse and a reason to, to write about this and to, to think about it. I have a couple more questions before we go out. Normally, I don't have like two questions that I ask people at the end of my podcast, but I wanted to uh, ask you two kind of big picture questions. One is uh, just in general, when you think about things, what's one thing that you're worried about? And then conversely, what's one thing that you're very optimistic about? So you can like kind of end it. You mean in the, in, the, in the world at large? In, in whatever context is important I to mean, you. I mean, I think... It um, uh, doesn't have to be at large. It can be well, for you I specifically. Well, I suppose that... Um, uh, it's a funny thing what will happen to kind of intellectually complex ideas in the world. You know, a lot of... Uh, it is... It is interesting to see the extent to which what co- what causes sort of people to do the work to really get to the next step in terms of intellectually complex ideas. And one of the things that's always a bit disappointing is you see a sort of mass distribution of things, and it's it, it too often it ends up being sort of lowest common denominator. That's the only thing. You know, it's it's like you're going to make this one point and it's some very banal point. And so I think it's a it's a it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I suppose it's it's I think it's probably been that way throughout history. So maybe there's no hope. But, uh, <laughs> right. And maybe it's a very uh, slow and and, uh, uh, and trickle of of, um, of of activity that leads to sort of conceptual advance in sort of the intellectual sphere in the world. But I think in um, I suppose, from a personal point of view, uh, one of the um, one of the issues is always. So I work on fairly big projects. They take sometimes decades, and one lives only a finite time. And so the question is, which projects does one choose to do? And that's complicated. And you know, you can, you know, some projects I've done, like the Wolfram Alpha project. You know, Gottfried Leibniz wanted to do that project in the late 1600s, and he even started doing it, and it was the wrong time. And, you know, it's basically the best strategy for doing that project is don't do it, wait 300 years, and then try and do it. <laughs> um, and so one of the issues is to what extent can one, uh, is, are the projects one's coming up with right-timed projects, so to speak, and to, in what sense are they, oops, we're off by 100 years. Um, so that's, uh, and then, you know, there's sort of a trade-off between things that uh, are, kind of fun to do in the moment versus things that will add up to more in the end and I think the um, you know one of the things that I personally have kind of put a big effort into is to not get so submerged by the things I have done that I can't do anything you know going forward so to speak and that's uh, that's always a personal challenge um, but I think uh, you know I've been um, Whatever I may think about 
what will happen sort of in the world at large in terms of the um, uh, kind of growth of intellectual ideas. I've had a personal chance, pretty good chance, to, uh, uh, to continue thinking about different kinds of things and making progress in different directions. That's a good thing to be optimistic about. And I think um, um, it, is, it is nice that, because I'm getting totally ancient, I've, you know, the one good feature about that is I've seen the arc of a lot of things happen, partly because I started doing stuff when I was pretty young. So it's like all the stuff in the tech industry. I saw the beginnings of most of that. And, you know, a lot of stuff about what's happened uh, sometimes painfully slowly in science. You know, I can see the, you know, the four or more decade arc of, of what's happened. And that's, um, uh, that's, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, well, that's, that's, I think, a really good way to end it. So I'll just before we finally wrap up, I'll just uh, say where should people keep up to date with things that you're doing and uh, things that's going on at Wolfram Research? Well, you can always look at stephenwolfram.com or wolfram.com and supposedly they'll have on their front pages things we think are interesting. Um, and, I, uh, and I've been putting out, particularly recently, I've been putting out a, a, a quite high density of uh, essays. Um, uh, you can find them right now at blog.stephenwolfram.com. Awesome. Well, this has been a really great conversation. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for the music you're hearing right now. To support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate and review, or let a friend know that they should listen as well. Check out the podcast description for links to some of the things we were talking about today. And if you have any comments or suggestions, check out the podcast on Twitter at EndeavorPod or send an email to EndeavorPodcast at gmail.com. 